Um, I'm starting today a, a series through the summer on prayer, a nine week series on prayer. We're going to, we're going to anchor this series eventually anyway, um, in the first four verses of Luke chapter 11. It's what we call uh, the model prayer. Some would call it the Lord's prayer. It's a very familiar prayer. Um, we're going to take that prayer phrase by phrase and basically preach a phrase per week. But before we get to that part of the series, I'm going to attempt to answer some pretty common questions about prayer. Like, like this morning, I'm going to answer the question, does prayer really work? Does it do us any good? Uh, next week, um, I'll answer the question, if prayer does us good, if it works, then why isn't God answering my prayer? I think there's five biblical reasons, possibilities for why God doesn't answer our prayer. And then after that, I'm going to preach on, on a question I've always had about prayer. And I think that God's got an answer for us in his word. And it's this, does prayer change God's mind? On one end, we believe in God's sovereign control over all things. His foreknowledge, he knows what's going to happen. He can make anything happen he wants. When we pray, does it make God change his mind? Does our prayer influence what God does for us, in us, or through us? We're going to talk about that over the next three weeks, and then we'll get into the first five verses of Luke 11 after that. To start, I, 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 want, to, I want to show you several pictures, and I want, I want you to see if you can guess what they all have in common. Okay? Here's the first one. Yeah, I, don't know, I don't know how they got my, my body on that picture without my permission, but um, that's a Bowflex. That's a Bowflex. Doesn't my wife look great? Uh, that's a Bowflex. You guys remember the Bowflex? Who had a Bowflex? Okay. <laughs> Overwhelming amount of people. Bowflex. Here's, here's the next picture. This is the Chuck Norris Total Body Gym. Y'all remember that? You remember the Total Body Gym? You got the total bodies of Taryn and Tanner Walton there. It's great. It's a great cutoff, Tanner. Great cutoff shirt. I like that. For some reason, your face is darker than your, your arms, but I don't know what's going on there. It's a bad Photoshop job. Here was, was one of my favorites here. <clears throat> is Spencer not even in here today? Spencer's our summer intern and he, he, in real life, he has a perm. And so I I felt like the ab cruncher in the two piece fit him well. All right. Here's the last one. That's Potsy. I owe you big time. I don't know how we got Potsy's head on my body, but, but we did. That's the shake weight. Let's take it off that picture as soon as possible, Tammy. Thank you. <laughs> Tammy, Tammy, his wife's back there running the media. And she's like, man, I haven't seen that in years. <laughs> Where did those abs go? <laughs> what these once trendy pieces of exercise equipment have in common is that they used to be popularly sold. And used as a means of getting in shape, but they have since went out of style. Probably out of stock. Question, was it that these pieces of equipment stopped working? No. It's that people stopped working them. Another trend came along, something better than the Bowflex, that offered quicker results 
with less work. I found that the same thing happens with prayer. Christians sometimes move beyond prayer. Not because it stops working. But because they stop working it. Theologian D.A. Carson says something rather uh, convicting and humbling. He says this, if you really want to embarrass the average Christian, just ask them to tell you about their private prayer lives. Many can impress others with their Bible knowledge or their evangelism stories, but their private prayer times are rather embarrassing. I'll confess that there have been seasons in my Christian life where I've really struggled with my private prayer life. I'm sure if you're honest, you could say the same thing. Why is that? Why do we find it so difficult to work something that we know really works? Well, I think it's because over time we doubt whether or not it really works. Think about it. Sometimes you pray and things happen and that's great. Then sometimes you forget to pray and the thing you forgot to pray for happens anyway. Well, that's good, except it seems to undermine the whole prayer is essential premise. At other times, you pray really hard and nothing happens. That's the worst. And so Christians just give up praying. We simply become prayerless or almost prayerless Christians. Believe it or not, Jesus was aware of this struggle. Remarkably, he was always a safe person to bring your doubts to. We know this because when his disciples asked him in chapter 11, verse 1, to teach them how to pray... After he gave them a few basic instructions, which we'll cover later on in the series, he immediately dealt with the question of whether prayer even works at all. Now, this is comforting to me because you would think that that by this time in the disciples training, Jesus would have kicked out anyone who still had doubts about whether prayer worked. But instead, Jesus patiently heads right for the topic of discussion, even with his most advanced followers. And as he often does. He he teaches them by way of a story that we find ourselves nodding our head to because we relate with it so well. In this story, he's going to teach us that prayer does work when we work it. When we pray like he teaches us to pray, it gets the job done. Through this parable, Jesus implies that we ought to pray in three ways. Let's start studying the parable in verse 5. And he said unto them, which of you shall have a friend And shall go unto him at midnight and say unto him, friend, lend me three loaves. For a friend of mine is in his journey, he's come to me and I have nothing to set before him. And he from within shall answer and say, trouble me not. The door is now shut and my children are with me in bed. I cannot rise and give thee. Let me tell you the first point that will explain it. Prayer works when you pray desperately. Jesus imagines someone, this is kind of humorous, but he imagines someone who goes to see his friend at midnight to ask for three loaves of bread that he can use to host the guests that showed up unexpectedly to his house. Now that's a tough enough situation in the 21st century, but we're in first century Judea here. There aren't any 24 hour grocery stores. There's no late night takeout, no DoorDash. If a guest shows up and you don't have food, they're going to bed hungry and you're going to bed embarrassed. But the situation gets worse. He's going over to make his request 
at midnight. Again, remember, we're in the first century. There's no electric light. So when the sun went down, people went to sleep. Therefore, midnight doesn't mean here in our text what what it means for the college students in our church. Midnight for them is an hour or two before bedtime. Midnight in the first century meant exactly what the word implies. The middle of the night. Halfway through your sleep cycle. This means as the guy pounds on the door, his neighbor would have been in bed already for four hours. I mean, is it any surprise that his answer is a bit short? The guy outside knocking on the door may have used the word friend, but I'm guessing that their friendship is on thin ice at this point. Furthermore, it's not as if he has life-threatening issues. Yes, in the first century, hospitality mattered. In fact, you lost face if you couldn't feed a guest, even if they didn't warn you they were coming. But it wasn't like wake up everyone in your neighborhood kind of important. No one's dying here. The guy isn't saying, hey, my wife just fell down the stairs and she's bleeding out of her ears. That would be bad. He says, hey, I just had some guests show up unexpectedly and I'm out of Pop-Tarts. Can you help me? It's like that level of hurt. It's not a matter of life and death. It's a request. Here's the point. If this guy was going to break all protocol and bang on his friend's door in the middle of the night, wake up his children, not because someone was dying, but to ask for three loaves of bread, it's because this man was desperate. If I were to ask you, why don't you pray more? You would probably default to something like this. Well, I'm just not disciplined enough, Pastor. I'm just not disciplined. I I need to have more willpower. I need to have more organization. I I, I need to have uh, a better spot to pray. I just need to be disciplined more. But that's only part of the truth. The real truth is that we don't pray because we're not desperate enough. We fail to recognize how utterly desperate we are for God's help. See, as Americans on this July 4th weekend, we we are the can-do people, right? We're people who assume that that with enough time and energy and resources, we can figure out a solution to anything. I mean, it's right there in our name. We're Americans, not Americans. And I think this spirit of optimism, this spirit of innovation can often be helpful. I mean, it's, it's healthy to respond to a challenge by wanting to overcome it, believing that you can and working hard to do it. But hear me, please. This spirit is absolutely deadly when it comes to spiritual things because Jesus said himself, apart from me, you can do nothing. I think prayerlessness comes from the fact that deep down inside, we really actually don't believe what Jesus said when he said that. We don't believe that without him, we can do nothing. Paul Miller, who wrote a book called A Praying Life, says this. If you are not praying then you are quietly confident that time, money, and talent are all you need in life. But if like Jesus, you realize you can't do life on your own, then no matter how busy, no matter how tired you are, you will find the time. Can you, can you just think about that for a moment? The person who modeled prayer and regular prayer was God himself in the flesh. The son of God is the one that told his disciples, you stay here while I go over there and pray. We got so many pictures of him going to a desert place, going to a place just with him and his father. Why? To admit, 
I need you, God. I want your will to be my will. I might be the son of the living God, but I still submit to the will of the Father. I read a story about a man who never prayed for more than 20 minutes at a time. Never. But that same man also said that he never went 20 minutes without praying. And he said it's because he knew there was never a 20 minute period in which he didn't need God's help. Can I challenge you, Christian, this week, starting tomorrow, for the next seven days to set your alarm on your phone for every hour that you're awake? And every time that alarm goes off, just pray, just pray a quick prayer to God. God, I need you today. Why? Because if you're up for 16 hours, 15 hours, however long you stay awake during the day, if you're up and you pray that 15 times in one day, it might remind you that you need God and without him, you can do nothing. Prayer works if you work it. So pray desperately. Believe you need God. Let's continue studying the parable. It shows us how the friend responds to this desperate request. Verse 8. I say unto you, though he will not rise and give him, because he is his friend, yet because of his importunity, he will rise and give him as many as he needeth. And I say unto you, ask, and it shall be given you. Seek, and ye shall find. Knock, and it shall be opened unto you. For everyone that asketh receiveth, and he that seeketh findeth, and to him that knocketh it shall be opened. Point number two, prayer works when you pray persistently. Jesus made it clear that the reason the man answered the request of his friend is not even because of his friendship with the guy, but rather because of his importunity. You know what that word means? Shameless persistence. You persist and persist and persist and you're not embarrassed by it. You're not even blushing. You don't even feel bad for asking. There's no greater illustration of importunity than children who repeatedly ask for the same thing from their parents. Can I get a witness? Kids know how to wear us out, right? For them, no really isn't an answer. It's an invitation to an extended negotiation. And frankly, they aren't even ashamed about it. They don't apologize before they persist in asking us for the same thing a million times. They're shamelessly persistent. This is the picture of how the man in Jesus' parable who's knocking down the door of his friend in the middle of the night is acting. Persistent and unashamed. And typically, we would say that's a bad thing. But in this case, when it comes to prayer, God wants us to approach him that way. Why? Why? If God's going to answer our prayer eventually, why doesn't he just answer it immediately? You ever thought that? If it's in God's will to give us what we want, why doesn't he give it to us the first time that we ask? I'm not sure entirely. Here's what I know. God is glorified through our persistence because in persisting in the request without being embarrassed by it, we're showing that God is the only place we have to go. Think about the story. The guy knocking on his friend's door didn't go elsewhere. He didn't say, okay, you don't want to answer? You don't want to get up when I bang on your door? That's fine. I'm sure another neighbor will do it. I'm sure another friend will come through for me if you don't. No, Jesus made it sound in the story as though this man believed this friend was his only option. That's why he kept knocking. 
That's why he kept persisting. He had nowhere else to go. And when we persistently pray that way, we're showing the same conviction about God. God, you're the only one who can help me here. I'm not going anywhere else because, Lord, there's nowhere else to go. I'm going to stand right here at the door and I'm going to knock and I'm going to keep knocking because I believe you're my only hope. Praying once or twice or ten times doesn't demonstrate that. Praying persistently for weeks, months, and years does. And it glorifies God. How many have ever heard of George Mueller? Raise your hand. You heard of George Mueller? Wrote one of the most influential books on prayer in Christian history. He tells a story about committing to pray for the salvation of five young men every single day. He prayed for 18 months before the first one was converted. After that first one was converted, he said this, I thank God and pressed on. He prayed every day for five more years before the second was converted and another six years before the third was converted. 36 years later, he wrote that the last two were still not converted. He's quoted as saying this, but I hope in God. I pray on and look for the answer. They're not converted yet, but they will be. Then in 1897, 52 years after he started praying for these guys, the final two were brought to faith. A few years after Mueller died. Listen, if you have something that's on your heart today. Something you're asking God for today. And that something lines up with the word of God. Friend, don't stop asking. Don't stop knocking. Don't stop seeking. God delights in that. Prayer works when you work it. So pray desperately. Pray persistently. Let me give you one more. Prayer works when you pray boldly. Now, when it comes to understanding this point and this parable, we have to interpret it correctly or we're going to be careful or or we're going to be mistaken. If you're like me, when you listen to a parable, you default by thinking this way. Okay, somebody in this parable is me and somebody in this parable is God, right? But this parable is a little confusing. Because because we're thinking, okay, the the inconsiderate, pesky, and desperate friend is us. And God must be the stingy friend who feels bothered and only answers the door because we won't go away. If that's the case, the truth of the parable would be this. If you want something from God, you just keep banging on the door. Eventually, he'll respond to you, not because he loves you, not because you're his child or you're his friend, but because you have bothered him to death. Now, that doesn't sound right to me. Does that sound right to you? It's not right. To interpret this parable correctly, you have to realize that Jesus' point is not to compare God to a stingy friend who's easily bothered, but to contrast him with one. Are you with me? God is the opposite of this. This is amazing when you think about it, because when we pray, we never speak to a friend who's asleep. We speak to the one who never slumbers or sleeps. We speak to a friend who not only gives us bread from his cupboard, but he gives us the bread of his own torn flesh. 
Here's the point. If even a sleeping, stingy friend will eventually give up, get up and give us our request, how much more will our Heavenly Father, who loves us and cares for us unconditionally and is never bothered by our prayer, give us what we need when we come to Him? That's why after Jesus tells the story, He uses a parent-child relationship to press this point home. Look at verse number 11 through 13. If a son shall ask bread of any of you that is a father, will he give him a stone? Or if he ask a fish, will he for a fish give him a serpent? Or if he shall ask an egg, will he offer him a scorpion? If ye then, parents, if ye then, being evil, know how to give good gifts unto your children, how much more shall your heavenly father give the Holy Spirit to them that ask him? Parents in here, listen. If your kid asks you for a chicken nugget, You're not going to say, okay, hold out your hand. Here's a scorpion in sweet and sour sauce. No. Let's reverse that. If your child is demonic and they ask you for a scorpion, are you going to give them a scorpion for lunch? Here you go, kid. Here's a scorpion. Take a bite out of that. If you're trying to kill your kid, they want to get bit by a scorpion, whatever. Decent parents don't do that. Decent parents, even on their worst day, want to be good to their kids. They want to protect their kids. They want to provide nourishment to their kids, not put them in danger. Yet, did you notice that Jesus, in verse 13, still calls the honest efforts of a good parent evil? What's up with that? Well, Jesus is making a really strong point here. Don't miss it. He's saying that even on our best day as parents, we're still tainted by sin. Granted, we're most generous and thoughtful and most protective with our kids, but we're never perfect. Yet, if in our sinfulness, we still want to meet our child's needs, how much more does our perfectly, our perfect heavenly father desire to meet our needs as his children? Do you get the point? You think you're a good parent? No, you're not. God is. When you compare your best day of parenting with God's best day of parenting, and he doesn't have anything but the best days, our parenting looks really evil in comparison to the generosity and loving kindness of our heavenly father. Well, Pastor Tyler, what does this have to do with praying boldly? It has everything to do with praying boldly. Because when you realize who you are, When you realize who it is that you're praying to and his character, you'll pray some really big, bold prayers. In fact, the closer the relationship, the bolder the asking. Think about it. Who in life approaches you most boldly? Probably your kids. Or for some of you, your grandkids. I know that's true for Jenny and I. Kevin's the kind of kid... That if he had to, he'd wake us up at 3 o'clock in the morning just to say, hey, I want some water. He's going to do it. And if he says, I need some water, like, who else would get away with waking me up at 3 o'clock in the morning for a glass of water? Right? If you tried waking me up at 3 a.m. for a glass of water, one of us is going to jail. (laughs) You for trespassing or me for killing you, one or the other. But when it's my child, my son, I, I would do what any good dad would do. 
I'd say, Kevin, your mom is right on the other side of the bed. Ask her. (laughs) Can I get an amen? (laughs) It's true. He don't even come to my side of the bed anymore. (laughs) In all seriousness, I'm thankful me and my son have the kind of relationship where he approaches me with this undaunted confidence in my goodness toward him. And that's how God wants us to approach him. Hear me. Like children who are welcome into their parents' bedroom at whatever hour of the night with whatever we have. J.D. Greer states it so well. Many of our failures in prayer are not because we are asking for too much, but because we imagine the love of our Heavenly Father as too small. In other words, you will only pray with boldness to the degree, to the degree that you comprehend the Father's love for you. There's a story told about Alexander the Great. They say that he conquered for himself an empire two-thirds the size of the United States while he was only in his 20s. So, Johnny, that makes our accomplishments look very modest. Towards the end of his life, one of his generals came to him and said, Alexander, I have served you you faithfully for years. I've never asked you for anything. But now I have one request. What is it? Replied the young emperor. The general answered, I would like you to pay for my daughter's wedding. Well, Alexander said, you've served me faithfully all these years. I will happily pay for this wedding. Go and speak to my treasurer about it. A few days later, the treasurer came to talk to Alexander. You need to punish that general, he said. He's trying to take advantage of you. He's requesting funds for the greatest wedding the empire has ever seen. He's invited everyone. He's taken advantage of your generosity. Alexander, he must be punished. The story goes that Alexander thought for a minute. And then he answered his treasurer. No, I want you to give him everything he's asking for. The treasurer looked shocked. He asked Alexander why. Alexander said, because my general is paying me two compliments. First, he thinks I am wealthy enough to afford all of this. Second, he thinks that I'm actually generous enough that I'll do it. He is acting as though I am wealthy and I am generous. So Alexander says, I will give him his request. Because in making this request, my general shows me tremendous honor. Alexander the Great may have ruled two million square miles of this world for a few years. But God Most High made it all. And he rules it all eternally. Look around at his creation. We was just at the Pacific Ocean. And it'll it'll, it'll just amaze you how vast and how large that is. You've been in the Rocky Mountains before. You've seen God's creation. That means you have much more evidence of God's wealth than that general did of Alexander's. And then look back at the cross of Calvary. Where God gave his son so that his enemies could be restored to him and enjoy his fellowship forever. Listen, friend, there's no greater evidence of his generosity than that. What would your request of God 
for others and for yourself, be like if you really believe that God is infinitely wealthy and generous and loving toward you. Here's what they'd be bold. Hebrews 4.16 says, let us therefore come boldly under the throne of grace that we may obtain mercy and find grace to help in time of need. You don't have to be scared to talk to the Heavenly Father. You don't have to feel selfish for asking something really big. In some ways, I think God is quite insulted. Whenever he has spoken the universe into existence in six days and taken a seventh day off, that we think he can't accomplish for us what we need. He is madly in love with you and I, like you are your children. And so you do not be ashamed of going to him on Monday and then going back on Tuesday and going back on Wednesday and going back on Thursday. Prayer works if you work it. So pray desperately. Believe you need him and without him you can do nothing. Pray persistently. Keep asking, seeking, and knocking. You're never a bother. And then ask boldly, believing that God loves you and wants to be generous toward you. Man, I've been acquainted with this truth about how prayer works. Just, just this morning in, in my private prayer time, just prepare my heart for the day. I, I thought of two things. I got a text message this morning from the pastor that I preached it uh, with uh, last, last Sunday in, in Newport Beach, California. Preached at his church, then we went and preached the youth camp. And he sent me a picture of this prayer list. With I, It had to have had 15 to 20 specific prayer requests. And every, we're going to do this for our kids next year for camp. Every adult that, that didn't go to camp was given one of these little uh, eight and a half by 11 sheets of paper with these prayer requests on it. And unbeknownst to the pastor, a group of dads of, of these teenagers that went to camp came up to the church during their lunch break every day of the week. And they met and they prayed over every one of those requests. And then on the back side, Pastor Thompson wrote how God tangibly answered every single one of those requests. Every one of them. Some kids got saved. Some kids surrendered to full-time Christian service. Some kids repented of a sin. It's amazing. Prayer works. Prayer works. See my brother Todd over there. I've been praying for Todd ever since he told me that he got diagnosed with prostate cancer. I've been praying for a lot of you have been praying for him. We baptized him and Sherry not too long ago into the fellowship family. I love Todd. He's a close friend of mine. And, and I remember I've prayed with him probably three or four times over the phone before appointments. And when he told me and all, I've been praying for him. And then Todd goes and has a, a pretty major surgery done. And our next prayer was that, that, that the biopsy report would not show any kind of cancer. And, and sure enough, it was, it was clear. And now we're praying that, that, that the blood work, whenever that gets sent in and done, that the blood work will be clean and clear and, and that God can declare him cancer free. God can do that. God has done so much from up to this point. And those are just two things that came to my mind. I know if I thought even deeper than that, some of you would have testimonies as to how God uh, praying to God works. But we don't, we don't move beyond prayer because we start doubting it. 
You just keep working it today. And watch how it will begin to work for you. Would you stand to your feet, every head bowed?